It is Morning Edition from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Rick Ganley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. We're getting into this week's top stories. Governor Chris Sununu announced this week that he will not be running for re-election in 2024. And communities across the state are recovering after the last round of heavy rain damaged roads and other infrastructure. Joining me right now are the Boston Globe's Amanda Gokey and NHPR's Josh Rogers to talk about those stories. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Rick. Morning. Josh, let's start with this announcement from Governor Sununu earlier this week. It wasn't a total surprise. What did you have to say about his decision not to run again? Well, four terms uh, is plenty. Uh, basically, his message was public service, in his estimation, shouldn't be a public career. Uh, you know, in, in an email to supporters making this announcement, he also uh, underscored what he sees as his achievements and, and their significance. And in some ways, uh, he has achieved a lot. Uh, the state is flush with money. The unemployment rate is low. Uh, he has cut taxes a bunch and successfully pursued conservative policies, uh, you know, on a lot of issues, including education, uh, taxes, gun rights, uh, energy, in a lot of ways. Prasunu has had sort of a charmed time as governor. The national economy was strong. He never had to really cut a budget. Uh, The Democrats who ran against him were not necessarily the strongest candidates. But, you know, I think it's also fair to say that that Chris Sununu did grow on the job. The COVID pandemic was was a challenge for him, and uh, he earned a lot of trust with the public on that front. Yeah, and with min- within minutes of his announcement, uh, New Hampshire Senate President Chuck Morris announcing he'd be running for governor, others sure to follow. I mean, it just opened the floodgates, I think, here. How is this going to shape that gubernatorial race come come next year? Well, it, it certainly makes it wide open, um, both you know in terms of the candidates and the race, and perceived that way nationally. Um, you know, Democrats are hoping that this this will open up the coffers of national donors who would see New Hampshire as a as a likely pickup uh, in the absence of Sununu being on the ballot. And you know, he, in um, you know, the situation for Republicans is is a little different. I mean, it does certainly look like we will have a long and potentially quite expensive primary. Morris is in. Kelly Ayotte, former U.S. Senator, former Attorney General, seems very likely to run. Um, you know, Frank Edelblue, education commissioner, is also likely to run or expected to run. And if Morris and Ayotte are in, uh, Frank Edelblue, who's seen as the most staunchly conservative of those people, will uh, would, you know, his path through the GOP primary likely improves. Uh, but, you know, we are a long ways away. Uh, you know, the, this election wouldn't take place for 14 months. And so this is very early mm-hmm. for uh, campaigns to get going. Um, you know, one thing that will be interesting on the Republican side is if you, if, this will be a chance to see what Republicans in New Hampshire want out of a nominee. You know, we, if you look back two years, the nominees that were chosen in the high-profile race for Senate and for the congressional races didn't fare too well in the general election. And, you know, presidential years tend to be stronger for Democrats. There's a boosting of turnout among people who don't always vote, and that tends to help Democrats. And Democrats tend to carry New Hampshire in a presidential year. Um, you know, but we do live in uh, interesting times. And, um, you know, neither Cindy Warmington, the executive counselor representing uh, District 2, or Mayor Joyce Craig are necessarily world beaters as candidates. They're solid. But for Republicans, you know, having Sununu on a ticket, really any ticket, has proven to be a plus. And, you know, certainly in terms of his his, his big wins, uh, he never faced really serious challenge, but also electing down ballot Republicans. And, and now he's not going to be on the ticket. Yeah. Uh, he teased to run for president himself earlier this year, but he declined to officially enter that race. And he's made the rounds with national media. Um, We've talked about that um, for the past several months. Did Sununu say what is next for him when this term is over? Well, he has to clock in, you know, for the next uh, 18 months as governor. Um, you know, he may know what, what lies over the horizon, um, but, you know, when his presidential notions 
clearly didn't take with Republican voters nationally in a discernible way. Um, he certainly has bumped up his profile, and that will potentially create opportunities. He's talked about returning to the private sector. He's surely logged a great deal of time on television. Um, you know, I'd be shocked if that doesn't continue. He said he plans to be involved in the GOP presidential primary. Um, you know, we'll see what form that takes. I mean, people have talked about him as a potential kingmaker. Uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe more influencer. Um, yeah. One thing to note, though, is that Sununu's loudest critics accepting, you know, very staunch abortion rights um, supporters who, who sort of consider him to be, you know, almost a liar for having run as a, as a pro-choice candidate and then signing a, a ban on abortion after 24 weeks. Uh, his most staunch critics, accepting those people, have been Republicans, uh, conservatives, uh, who have long seen him as too moderate. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much influence the governor can exert in the primary. Uh, right. he, you know, his goal is to steer the GOP away from Trump. And uh, just because cable TV bookers think you're a good guest doesn't necessarily translate into influence with voters. That's true. But I, I, I imagine these appearances nationally will continue. As a national media yesterday had, it was big headlines that, that Sununu was was not going to run again. He likes going on TV. He certainly does. Um, one last question for you. He, as you as you alluded to, he's still governor for another year and a half. What can we expect in this the rest of this term? Well, I mean, being governor is in some sense dealing with whatever comes your way, um, good things and bad things. Uh, there are school funding lawsuits out there. We could have rulings in those. Uh, you know, the state faces ongoing liabilities with the, the lawsuits around the former Youth Development Center, now, now known as the Sununu Center, named for the governor's father. Um, you know, being governor is reactive. Sununu has always been at arm's length with the legislature. Um, that's likely to continue. I'll be keeping an eye on who he appoints or, or tries to appoint to keep posts as he runs yeah. out his term. Um, Does he lose influence being a lame duck? Well, I don't know that. I mean, in terms of appointments, that'll be up to the that'll be up to what the council thinks. Sure. But you know, he's he one one legacy of his time in office after roughly two decades of Democrats, basically, with the exception of Craig Benson being governor, is that he has been able to remake state government. He's appointed the bulk of the justices to the state's highest court, pretty much every agency head, and there are going to be further vacancies that'll come up, and it'll be interesting to see who he chooses to put in those jobs, particularly since he's not going to have to you know face voters again. Okay, thanks. Josh. This is Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with NHPR's Josh Rogers and the Boston Globe's Amanda Gokey. What questions do you have about what's going on in the state? Email us. Voices at NHPR.org is that email address. Turning to some other big news of the week, cities and towns are continuing to clean up after the recent floods. Amanda, I want to turn to you. How much do we know about the extent of the damages across the state? Yeah, so from last weekend, towns in the Lakes region were hit pretty hard um, by a deluge of rain on Sunday. And some other cities in the in the center of the state reported damage as well. So notably, um, I spoke with some folks in, in Manchester about what they were seeing as far as flooding. And there was some pretty shocking footage of a sinkhole and, you know, lots of people dealing with flooded basements. So it caused so much damage in part because as many as six inches of rain fell in a really short period of time. And so it just accumulates. And you saw that that footage of, you know, uh, rain really running down in sheets on along roads, roads kind of almost be, be turning into rivers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's pretty crazy to see that um, here. Uh, state officials did say they had a tally of about 100 roads uh, throughout the state that had been closed as a result of that. And flooding from the week before, this is kind of important to note, right on the heels of a lot of rain that the week prior um, had caused a dam to burst in Winchester. Um, and in, and just circling back to Manchester, which I had mentioned, the, the fire 
fire department there told me they received 800 calls for for flooded basements. So just, that was Sunday alone and, and without the tallies on, on Monday added into that. Awfully hard to cover 800 calls, I imagine. Uh, what are some of the challenges that towns are facing as they're trying to recover, Amanda? So some of the towns are really struggling to pay for this. The the state is obviously helping to fix state roads, but but towns do have a responsibility for their own roads. And I, I spoke with Mike Brooks. He works in Madison's volunteer fire department. And he said the town was holding an emergency meeting basically to figure out what their response is going to be. How can they come up with the money to pay for all of this? It's not something that they included in their budget um, and they don't have an emergency budget necessarily set aside for this sort of expense. So they have to go to the taxpayers and say, where is it, it going to come from? Um, and it's a challenge for residents, too. So in Madison as well, I, I spoke with a, a, a man who was an, um, an older man who was stranded at home um, with his driveway and the, the road that connects him out to the town, um, having washed away and, you know, facing up to a week in that sort of situation. Um, he said the neighbors have responded with a lot of um, offering help and saying, you know, if you need a ride anywhere, we're here for you. Um, So that's really making it a lot easier. But there is sort of a a personal impact on the folks who are dealing with this um, firsthand as well. And I'm sure that that's a scene that's repeated in in, in many places around around the state and, of course, northern New England in general. Josh, has the state gone to, to the federal government for help here? The state is in the process of doing so. Uh, the governor said he did reach out to uh, FEMA, FEMA director uh, Deanne Cresswell uh, at hoping for an, an immediate master uh, emergency declaration of the sort that was granted in Vermont, where you know all the c- circumstances Amanda describes were more. Um, severe um, and that uh, was that wasn't granted. And so there's a process where the state essentially has to take an inventory of damages um, statewide. And then when it hits a threshold of, I think, two and a half million dollars, then FEMA comes in and, and does a second one. But, you know, the money money will flow. I mean, once a disaster declaration takes effect and, you know, that is expected that it will, it's a matter of time, that, um, you know, an array of aid to cities, towns and individuals uh, kicks in. I mean, oftentimes the money doesn't necessarily arrive quickly. And so that is a concern of local officials who may be hoping to get money down the line. Sure. You know, the governor says, you know, the state's going to be working as fast as it can to expedite the flow of federal aid. So what else can the state do in the meantime to help these towns? Well, I mean, I, you know, the state could potentially provide money to cities and towns. I mean, the state, fortunately, uh, you know, the rainy day fund is at a high balance. That's not necessarily literally meant to um, deal with situations caused by yeah. flooding. But, you know, th- that that could be something it could that could be looked at. I mean, there's certainly sort of bonding that could be done. There are all sorts of financial things the state could do. But I think right now the focus is on getting the paperwork done to speed the flow of federal money to help cities and towns and individuals. Amanda, you reported that the flooding can also affect water quality. What are some of the risks there? Yeah, so it turns out there's actually a lot of uh, potential problems there. So we're imagining these sort of really heavy flows of of water. Obviously, that's going to carry debris. So things like tree trunks or branches and those things can be underwater and you might not necessarily see it if you're sort of looking at a place that you think you want to swim. There's obviously fast moving water, which can be dangerous if you're thinking about jumping into a a river. Maybe not the best time to to do that with uh, flooding flows moving so quickly. And these heavy flows are also moving around a lot of nutrients. So that can be anything from fertilizer that people put on their lawns. There's a lot of runoff that's getting into the waterways. And unfortunately, when you have a lot of nutrients entering the water, that can create problems like cyanobacteria. Um, Obviously, there's also, unfortunately, in some cases, flooding of septic systems or sewage. So that's bringing fecal bacteria into the water. 
which as you can imagine is is not healthy for people to be exposed to whether you're swimming or in some cases you know it can affect people's people's wells so if you think that's the possibly something that's affecting your well it's important just to get it tested and to make sure that the the drinking uh, quality is is healthy in it and that it hasn't been contaminated yeah absolutely I think uh, that that that's uh a good point all the time, but with, with, when you're talking about a private well. But I imagine that I don't know if you can answer this, but with so many people looking for testing, is is that going to take some time for people to get those tests done? That's a great question. Are companies so, overwhelmed. Yeah. So I did check out the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services has some information about this on its website. They didn't say whether there would be a backlog of testing at all. They just sort of have a list and they refer people to um, its private testing companies that are doing this sort of yeah. testing. Um, so that's a great question and something to look into for sure. Now, Amanda, I want to touch on another story you did this week before we, I let you go. You recently interviewed an indigenous filmmaker, uh, Alanis Obamsawin. She's receiving the prestigious Edward McDowell Medal this weekend, but she's been a prolific filmmaker for a long time. What are some of her reflections as she's been looking back in her career? She was just incredibly optimistic about how much progress she's seen. So just for context, she's been working for around 60 years. She's 90 years old right now, just extremely full of energy. Um, She still has two films coming out this year. And she said how much things have changed since the time that she was a child. I mean, she she mentioned growing up. Um, she was born in New Hampshire and then moved to Odenac and grew up in Quebec. So Odenac's an indigenous reserve up in um, Quebec. And she basically was talking about just the racism that she endured at school, which she really attributed to sort of the official history accounts that talked about indigenous people as being savages and scalping white people and um, kind of a lot of these negative negative tropes. And she said that's really changed. And she basically sees Canada as, as leading the way in, in the fight for justice for indigenous people. Um, so one example that she, she cited of this change is, you know, when she was a child, children would be punished for speaking their ancestral languages. And mm-hmm. now they're actually encouraged to, to do so. Uh, it's an amazing story, so I encourage readers to, to go and see that now. Amanda Goki, reporter for the Boston Globe, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And NHPR's senior political reporter, Josh Rogers, thanks for coming in. Good to be with you. You can find their work again in all the stories we talked about this morning at bostonglobe.com and at nhpr.org. By the way, while you're there, we suggest you check out the New Hampshire News Quiz. It's quick, fun, and informative. You can sign up to get the quiz emailed to you. Find it at nhpr.org quiz. And we're here next Friday with more top stories. I'm Rick Ailey, and this is NHPR.